Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's pray as we come to the text of Holy Scripture. Let's pray. Our Father, we we know that without your illumination by the Holy Spirit, we would never understand anything in a true and saving way from your word. And so we pray now that you would give of your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and our hearts and our understanding that we might truly understand this glorious passage from the book of Genesis. Help me in preaching and help all the people here in learning and listening and growing by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we saw last Lord's Day, as we've been continuing going through Genesis, the reality of Adam and Eve and them hearing Jehovah in the garden and how Jehovah called out to them and asked them where, called out to Adam asking where he was. We then see the reality that Adam and Eve, they blame shift or Adam and his wife, they blame shift. Adam blaming the woman and God and Eve blaming the serpent. And so in, after all of that, we see how Jehovah or the Lord God shifts now from the man to the woman. And now verses 14 and 15, focusing on the curse given to the serpent, given to the serpent. So the main point of this sermon is Jehovah curses the serpent and promises the seed of the woman to bruise his head. Jehovah curses the serpent and promises the seed of the woman to bruise his head. First point, Jehovah curses the serpent. And then connected with that, but my second point, Jehovah promises the seed of the woman to bruise the serpent's head. We have seen that the serpent is described later on in the Bible, in the book of the Revelation, as the devil and Satan. So either the serpent is literally a manifestation of Satan, or Satan used this serpent to accomplish his purpose and was animating and giving strength, we could say, so to speak, to the serpent. But either way, we know that the devil is behind the serpents. The devil is the one who is involved with the temptation of Eve, Eve, of course, she was named after later on. She's not yet Eve yet, but we know her, of course, as Eve and the temptation of Eve and of Adam. And so we see here that 
Jehovah, the Lord God, first curses the serpent in light of what he did. In light of the serpent being involved with deceiving the woman and having her to eat by his deception, he then comes to the serpent and tells him, because you have done this, again, that doing this is having them doubt the word of God like we saw, has God said, has God really said? So he wanted them to doubt the word of God, question the word of God. And then he said, flat out denied the word of God. And I try to show you in that sermon that this is the process of unbelief and even apostasy where someone has false faith, where it wasn't genuine faith. And then they reject Christ because their faith was not genuine. They doubt the word, they deny the word, and then they think they have something better than the word of God. And so we see he was involved with that temptation of the woman. And therefore, because he has done this, the, this being that temptation, God says, Jehovah says to him, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Which we see implying here that this creature might have not been on its belly before. But now because of this curse, this serpent will be on his belly. He'll eat dust all the days of his life, showing his humility and his humiliation because of tempting the woman to eat the forbidden fruit. So we see that, that reality that Jehovah goes to the serpent, tells him this reality and these things. I don't think this is meant for us to think because it will go on and talk about enmity between the woman and the serpent. This is not a text teaching us why most people are afraid of snakes. That's not the point of this. Someone could read this like, this is why most women are afraid of snakes. That's not the point. The point is, is, is more, it's a lot bigger than that. Are most people afraid of snakes? Are many women afraid of snakes? Sure. But I don't think that's because of this text. I think this text is showing us the humiliation of the serpent. Again, who behind the serpent... What at least was the devil. And so this is more than cursing the serpent, even though it's going to affect, as we see, this animal called the serpent. It's connected with cursing the one behind the serpent or the one used by using the serpent, the devil himself. Or maybe we could say that the serpent literally was the devil. There's there's maybe different ways of looking that exactly. But what we do know for sure that the serpent was used by the devil, whether as the devil himself coming in that bodily form or using that creature. And so we see that the humiliation of this creature because of his coming to the woman to to tempt her to eat the forbidden fruit, which then, of course, she gave to her husband and he ate. But what we will see in verse 15 is that the curse upon the serpent will be a blessing to men. The curse upon the serpent is actually a blessing to God's people. Because if you look now at verse 15, and my second point now, which will be most of the sermon, focusing on this verse and how it's important to the rest of the Bible. My second point, Jehovah promises the seed of the woman to bruise the serpent's head. This is such an important verse to the rest of the Bible. This is sometimes called, we call it the, it's somewhat of a hard word to pronounce, but the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first gospel, the first gospel presentation, which is interesting, given by God to the serpents. 
God preaches, at least in seed form, the gospel to the serpent. And that's why I say what's a curse to the serpent will be a blessing to God's people, will be a blessing to the church, will be a blessing to the redeemed. And so we see that God tells the serpent, in light of what he did, this is what's going to happen. He will put enmity, which is not a positive word, hostility. There's going to be enmity. They are going to, we, could, we might say they're going to butt heads. There's going to be hostility between the, you, the serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and the woman, and not only between those two, but between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. And the woman's seed will bruise him on the head. And the serpent will bruise him on the heel. And so we see this contrast of hostility in this verse. That there will be hostility and enmity between the woman and the, seed and the serpent. And between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. And this verse is crucial to understanding the rest of the Bible. We could put it like this. The rest of the Bible is basically expanding and unpacking this verse. That's what the rest of the Bible is. It's expanding and unpacking this one verse. The Old Testament is an expansion of this promise. And the New Testament is saying this promise has been fulfilled. We could almost put it, I don't think it would be too strong to say this is the thesis statement, at least in seed form of the entire Bible. You know what the entire Bible is about? The seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. That's what the entire Bible is about. And everything else in the Bible, you know what it does? It just builds on with more light and revelation. This promise that there will come a seed that will crush or bruise the serpent's head, even though he will be bruised on the heel. And we should know this because if you read the Old Testament, there's a real strong focus on male descendants. Not because women aren't important. Women are very important. They're equal in value and importance as men. They're both made men and women in the image of God. You know why there's such an emphasis on a male seed? is because ultimately there would come a male seed who would be the redeemer of God's people. And so this promise that we see here is expanded in the rest of the Bible, that there will be one who will come who will bruise the head of the serpent. And so we think about the the well-known story of Joseph and, of course, his brothers and selling them into slavery. And a lot of people sadly misread that story, what the point of that story is. A lot of people think or can think it's about Joseph's success and this and that. And there are principles we can learn. Of course, we can learn from his faithfulness to God, his commitment to moral purity, all of that. There are good things to learn. But the main point of the Joseph account, you know what it is? Is to preserve the nation of the promised seed. That Joseph was raised up to second in power, not to show people how great it is to be in charge. That's not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is to show that God promised a seed. And if this nation is wiped out by starvation, that promise wouldn't be accomplished. And so God is preserving the nation so that through them, one would come. And why would he do that? Because before Joseph, there was a man named Abraham, whom, what is the key promise given to Abraham? In your seed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. What is that but an expansion? So we get in Genesis 3.15, it'll be the seed of the woman. In Genesis 22 and other places, we get that it will be the seed of Abraham. Then we also see what, that this seed will be from where? The tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah, which again expands on that. That this seed will be of the tribe of Judah. 
We also know that this seed will be of David's line. He will be the seed of David's. And so this promise in the rest of the Bible is expanded. And so the reason why, the key reason why God was preserving the Israelite people, the the physical descendants of Abraham, you know why? The key reason was this, is because from them would come the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. God was preserving them so that in them the promised Messiah would come. And so the rest of the Bible, like I've been saying, is just an unpacking of this truth. That there would come one who would actually accomplish this redemption. And that's why if you turn to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, as we see a reality there, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. It's interesting, if you think about this book of Matthew, what was it written for? It was written for, I think, a primarily Jewish audience to show the, the Jewish people that Jesus was the promised Messiah. That's why there's many, many quotations in Matthew of the Old Testament because he is trying to show that this is not something new. This is just a fulfillment of what God has been telling us for generations. But listen how he starts his gospel. The very first verse of the very first gospel in our Bible. What does he say? This is Matthew 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. We see here that Matthew wants us to know that this promised Messiah, this one who is Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. He is that seed that was promised, like we saw first in Genesis 3.15. Then to Abraham, then to David. This is the promised seed. He's their son. He's the son of Abraham and he's the son of David's. And so this passage shows us clearly that he is that promised seed. Son of David, Son of Abraham. And so that's why I said before, what the Bible is doing is taking this first promise of the gospel given to the serpent and expanding it. It becomes very general, or it begins very general, seed of the woman. Very, very general. Then it becomes more specific, seed of Abraham. We see the tribe of Judah. We see son of David. All these things, it becomes more and more clear who this child would be from, And how he would come. If you look at Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7 I think highlighting this reality. With obviously this promise in the background. If you look at Isaiah 7 and verse 14. This is the prophecy that one would come and be born of a virgin. And of course a virgin woman. Fulfilling that promise or foreshadowing what would be fulfilled as this woman would carry the seed of the woman. Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So we see there that Isaiah says there's going to be one. She's going to be a virgin and she will conceive and bear a son and his name will be Emmanuel, which we should know is translated God with us. 
But then if you look at Isaiah 9, also unpacking these truths and building on the reality of the sea of the woman, if you look at Isaiah 9 and verse 6, it says, Isaiah 9 verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's interesting, this verse actually has the humanity and deity of Christ in the same verse. It's a child born. You can only be born if you're a human. But it's a son given, not born, but given. It's a son born, I mean a son given and a child born. And just by his names, we know that this one coming is not a mere man because he's described in verse verse 6 as mighty God. Mighty God. And he's the one, when it says everlasting father, it's not saying that he is the father like we think about God the father. When you are the father of something, it means it would mean also you possess it. So he's the possessor of eternity. He's the possessor of being everlasting. And so we see this expanding and bringing out these promises more clearly. And if you look back, just to, I've already kind of obviously mentioned this, but if you go to Psalm 89, Psalm 89, we see there the reality that God was going to bring through David one who would be his heir, who would be his son, who would be his seed. Psalm 89 and verse 3. Psalm 89 verse, I'm going to read 3 and 4. Psalm 89, 3 and 4. It says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. So we see there in this text that God promised, swore to David that he would provide him a seed who he would establish forever. And again, Matthew tells us explicitly who that fulfillment of the seed of David is is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why this language of seed and descendants and all this is so important in the Bible. Because God's promise to redeem would come through a man. Not a mere man, but a man. And therefore, this man would come from Abraham, from David, to destroy and crush the serpent. This is also, too, why if you read the Old Testament, there's, there is at least pictures of head crushing that actually should, you should listen to them and say there's something more to this than just a neat story. I mean, think about the head of Dagon. But probably the best one is, and details in the Bible are not without purpose. Details are important in the Bible. And we see with David and Goliath, what does David do to Goliath's head? He crushes it. He crushes it, foreshadowing his greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who had crushed the serpent's head. And so there's a lot to get out of the David and Goliath story, but one thing you should get out of it, if you have Jesus' reading of the Old Testament, it was about him. Because Luke 24, Jesus says the whole Old Testament is about him. And therefore, to rightly understand David and Goliath, you must read it as Jesus is the greater David who crushes the serpent's head. And so we see 
this reality of in the Old Testament of a focus on these things because God's promise given as a curse to the serpent is there would come one, the seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head. That's, and the rest of the Bible, like I said, unpacks that promise. The serpent was the one uniquely involved, even though Adam and Eve, of course, sinned, uniquely involved in bringing it. And God was going to judge the serpent to reverse the curse, to reverse the fall. But now let me show you some New Testament texts that the New Testament understands this reality in light of Christ. This promise is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 through 30, this is the context where Jesus is being accused of casting out demons by demons or casting out the devil by the devil. And we see here in this chapter, Matthew 12, it is interesting if you look at verse 23 before we get to verse 28. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 23, it says, interestingly there, that they say, and all, well, I'm going to read verse 22 to give why they said this. Then one was brought to him. This is Matthew 12, 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. Listen to how they respond. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David's? Interestingly, in that context, they say, could this be the son of David? And what do the, what do the Pharisees say? No, no. He's casting out by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And then verse 28, after going through that, a little bit of of talking about how it would be foolish if Satan was fighting against himself. But then he says, verse 28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. And he who is not gathered with me scatters abroad. Who is the strong man that Jesus has to bind? Satan. Satan is the strong man. And what Jesus does by his coming, by bruising him on the head, is bind Satan. So that he can plunder his goods. So that he can redeem those who were in the clutches of the devil, which is what the Bible teaches unconverted people are. And redeem them out of that position and bring them into his house. Take them out of Satan's kingdom into his kingdom. Or if you look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We see here that the Holy Spirit connects what Jesus came to do and its connection to the devil. Which again... The promised seed of the woman is coming to destroy, to crush the seed of the, or to crush the serpent's head. This is Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
This is a power, this is, these are powerful verses. The writer of Hebrews, by the Holy Spirit, says the reason why the Son of God took on human flesh, the reason why he took on flesh and blood, why did he do that? That he might destroy the devil. That he might destroy the devil. And why did he have to destroy him? So that he could release those who through fear of death because of the devil were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so we know, let me make it very clear. Jesus didn't pay anything to the devil. It was paid to the wrath of God. But we do know in his cross work, he did destroy the devil. The one who had power over these people, the power of death. That is the devil. And so Jesus destroys him through his death. And releases those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so the book of Hebrews understands Jesus' work in light of Genesis 3.15. Where, where would the writer have understood that he came to destroy the works of the devil? That he came to destroy the devil? Where would he have got that from? I know where he would have got it from. Genesis 3.15. I mean, he all throughout this book quotes the Old Testament. Where would he have understood that God's purpose in sending the Redeemer was so that the devil and his works would be destroyed? Genesis 3.15. That's where it's rooted in. So that's why I said all of the realities of Christ and his work and his person are found in seed form in the crawl, or in Genesis 3.15. We even see in Genesis 3.15 that he'll be a man, that he will suffer, but he will enter glory. Does that sound familiar? We, we get, I'm, I'm not saying we would know this crystal clear if we didn't have the rest of the Bible. We do need the rest of the Bible to understand these things. But you know the wonderful thing? Is we don't only have Genesis 3.15. So we have the rest of the Bible to say, look, to look back and say, wow, there's a lot to Genesis 3.15 that maybe left to ourselves we wouldn't see. But because we have the whole Bible, we can see it. And so there we see that he would be a man because he would be the seed of the woman. We see that he would suffer because he would be bruised on his heel but we know he would conquer and enter glory because he would crush the serpent. He would have a wound, but it would not be a wound that would keep him down forever, but he would have a crushing wound to the serpents. And so there we see those realities. And isn't that not what Jesus says? That the entire Old Testament is about his sufferings and glory, which in seed form are found in Genesis 3.15. He would suffer, but conquer. He would suffer, but enter glory. And we see here that he came to destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That is the devil. And then if you look at 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3. I'll read verses 4 through 15. And I really want you to listen closely. So think, everybody, when you listen to these verses, think Genesis 3.15. Think. What is going on in Genesis 3.15? What we heard in Genesis 3.15 and the language that John by the Holy Spirit uses in light of knowing I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So listen to 1 John 3, 4 through 15 with that lens. Whoever commits sin, verse 4, also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. 
He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot see it, sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. When John is writing this by the Holy Spirit, he must have, by what he says, had Genesis 3.15 all over his mind. Because he says, for this purpose, the reason, he says, if you want to know why the Son of God was manifested, if you want to know why the Son of God assumed a human nature, became a man, was incarnate for us and for our salvation, this is why, verse 8, to destroy the works of the devil. And why are the works of the devil? Sin and death. Sin and death. And therefore, the Son of God came and was manifested to destroy his works. And then, interesting, in the same chapter, he talks about one who was of the seed of the serpent. Cain, who was of the wicked one. He was a seed of the serpent. Because just like the seed of the woman is a singular figure, that's important for us to get. But also, there's a collective group that's the seed of the woman as well. The seed of the serpent is Satan and his children. The seed of the woman is Christ and his people. This is important. It's not either or, it's both and. Just like we've talked about Jesus being the seed of Abraham. But in Galatians 3, it says there's one seed of Abraham, Christ. But then it says, if we're in Christ, then you know what? We're also the seed of Abraham. So there's a singular seed, Christ, and there's a corporate seed. The people are in Jesus by faith. And so there's a singular serpent, but there's also children of the serpent, as we even see in verse 10, the children of God and the children of the devil. And so we see this reality in this text, in these texts about the son of God's purpose. The purpose for the son of God coming was to destroy the works of the devil. That's Genesis 3.15. That he would come and bruise the serpent's head, even though he would be bruised on his heel. We also see, if you turn to Romans 16, I was, we see negatively that the seed of the serpent, it was Cain, or one of, one of his children was Cain. But if you look at Romans 16, the reason why I say that we can say that the seed of the woman is singular, it's ultimately Christ, but also Christ's people, is because of Romans 16.20. Romans 16.20 makes it clear that we have to think about it in a corporate way too. Romans 16 and verse 20. It says there, Romans 16 and verse 20. And the God of peace 
will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So we see here clearly that not only did Christ crush the serpent and destroy his works, we as Christ's church, as Christ's people, the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet shortly. And so it's not just Christ who wins victory over the devil. It's everyone in Christ who also overcomes the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I used David before, which I think is a good example of this picture. Let me show you how this is foreshadowed with David. Remember when David, of course, David hits Goliath. He crushes his head. Do the rest of the Israelites say, oh, this is great. We don't have to do anything. Let's just sit back and relax. No, what did the Israelites do in light of him winning victory? They had victory in David over the Philistines. They charged. And because the great one was crushed, they were able to win victory in David. And it's the same for us. Because Jesus, for us, has destroyed the works of the devil, we are able to resist the devil and he will flee from us. But let me make this very clear why this is important. Because we're not the hero of the story. We don't want to make it seem like we do it by ourselves, for ourselves, in our own strength. We do it behind our champion, Jesus Christ. You know why you can have any victory over the devil or the world or your own sinful flesh? The only reason is because Jesus already conquered all three by his death and resurrection. And so if we ever read the Bible like we're the hero of it, we've missed the point. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the hero and we simply win victory in him. Because what's the victory that overcomes the world? It's our faith, but is our faith in our faith? Of course not. That would be silly. It's faith in Christ that overcomes the world. Why? Because he won victory for us so that we can, in him, win victory. So this is crucial that we understand the seed of the woman promise that God promised. He would be bruised on the heel. And just to make it crystal clear, what that means is he would die. He would suffer, yes, a serious wound, even under death. But, because, but it doesn't say he was crushed on the head or bruised on the head because he was resurrected. And therefore his wound was real, but it was not fatal in the sense of he stayed dead. But he rose again. But the serpent was judged, defeated, and will be one day cast into the lake of fire as the enemy of Christ. And so we see that our Lord Jesus Christ is the sea of the woman, and everyone in him is of his seed. So those who are without Christ, as we bring this to some application, those who are without Christ, they are in the kingdom of Satan and his seed. And the only way that they can be delivered from Satan's kingdom is if they come to the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. There's no way an unbeliever can ever be redeemed. No way anyone can ever be saved unless they come through the sea of the woman to be conveyed and transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son of God's love. And then for us as believers, let me just show you how practical it is for you to know that Jesus is the sea of the woman. Because all of us have to wrestle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the wonderful thing is we can have great hope. You know why people stop doing things? Because they lose hope. That's why people give up, because they don't think there's any hope. But if Jesus is the seed of the woman, and he is, and if he already won victory for us, 
we know that we can win victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we are never without help or without hope because Jesus has won the victory for us. He's already destroyed the works of the devil. He's already released us from his bondage. He's already released us from captivity to him. And therefore, we can, by his grace, overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're never stuck as believers because we're not going in our own strength or our own name or our own power. We're going behind our champion, Jesus Christ. We, would, we should be very fearful if it was based on us. But because it's based on our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, therefore we can overcome. We can overcome. And so you can, we can look at every Christian right in the eye and say, you are never stuck in your situation of sin and disobedience. You know why? Because you're united to the sea of the woman who's already destroyed the works of the devil, sin and death. And therefore you, just like him, can practice righteousness. Because isn't that what the children of God are marked by in 1 John 3? They practice righteousness and they love their brothers. And so because we're in the one who destroyed the works of the devil, we can overcome. And so you might be here, and I, I don't know everything that's going on in everyone's heart, of course, because I'm not infallible, but there might be things that you're wrestling with, you're struggling with, you're fighting. And I just want to remind you, even this afternoon, that if you are reminded and press into the reality that Jesus has won victory for you, and you are an overcomer in him, you can overcome. You can live for God and for his glory because he already won victory for you. He already bruised the serpent's head. He already has plundered his goods. And you can live released from the fear of death because he destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. Let me make another application. This should be true of all of us. We can all struggle with it, I know. But you know what is true? I love preaching. I would preach... I was preaching, I guess it would have been May, around May of 2020, I was preaching at Ocean City Open Air Preaching because it was open. So we could go out open air preaching there. And there were people there. And I love preaching Hebrews 2 there because you know what people are so afraid of? Death. So afraid of death. So worried about death. But for the child of God, you know what? We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear death because Jesus has destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. And for us, if we're in Christ, you know what death is? It almost sounds strange to say it like this, especially for people who haven't heard this verse. But for us, death is gain. Death is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain because Jesus has delivered me from the world, the flesh, and the devil in the sense of he has delivered me from their bondage. And so we have this blessing that even though it was a curse to the serpent, It was a blessing and is a blessing to us. Also, we must know, like I said this morning, everyone in the Old Testament was saved the exact same way. You're saved by the seed of the woman. I'm saved by the seed of the woman. And everyone who's ever been saved has been saved by the seed of the woman, by the seed of Abraham, by the seed of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's always been the same. So the question comes, how were Old Testament saints, how did they know? Well, they didn't have as much light as you do or I do. They didn't know his name was going to be Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't know he was going to be, all, or they didn't know all the different things that we knew, that we know. But you know what they did know? That God promised a seed who would crush a serpent's head, who would overcome where Adam failed, and my trust is in him. And that's how they were saved. They trusted in the one who was to come, the seed of the woman. And so salvation didn't change. It's always been through the singular seed of the woman. 
And so there is that hope for everyone in the seed of the woman. It's interesting that there were people who were saved before the Bible was written. Have you ever thought about that? There were people saved before the Bible was written. What do I mean by that? Who, who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses. Moses. But Moses lived after Noah, who was definitely a believer. Abel, who was definitely a believer. He lived long after Abraham. He wrote this a while back. But how were they saved? Not because they had any written revelation, but they had the promise that God had given to, their four, to the, our forefathers, Adam and Eve, by cursing the serpent, that a seed of the woman was coming. And that's how they had faith. That's what they had faith in. Because we don't, we don't have faith in our faith. Faith in faith is pointless. What do we have faith in? God's promises. And God's promise primarily for them was that there would come one who would crush the serpent's head. And that's how they were saved. That's how they were redeemed, because they trusted that promise. Because Abel, we know explicitly from Hebrews and Noah, had faith because they had faith in God's promise to bring this seed of the woman. And that's why I can say the rest of the Bible is about this. And that's why Jesus can say, this is so important. That's why Jesus can say, Moses wrote about me. That's why Jesus can say the law, the prophets and the Psalms, you know what they're about? Me. Because what are these things all about? How the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. What I'm not saying, because I don't want to be misunderstood, I'm not saying there aren't other things we get out of the Old Testament. There's moral lessons. There's moral application. There's wisdom. All of that. Wonderful. We need that. But if we take the moral lessons and the wisdom without Christ, we miss the point. If we take the moral lessons without Christ, we miss the point. Because that's how the, the Pharisees read the Bible. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it's they which testify of me. He was saying to them, you read your Bible thinking that just reading it is what's going to give you eternal life. Missing the entire point, it's about me. It's about me. And he says, if you believe Moses, you know what? You will believe me because he wrote about me. And so Moses, the the human author of Genesis, wrote about Christ. And we first see the gospel proclaimed to the serpent that he would be the seed of the woman. And therefore, let's take the moral lessons out of the Bible. Let's take the wisdom. Let's take the lessons and learn from them and apply them and live in light of them. But let us do it knowing that we're rooted and grounded in the sea of the woman, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand your word and to apply it. Thank you for the sea of the woman who bruised and crushed the head of the serpent. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.